right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning to you watching online. I want to invite you turn in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 6. In just a minute, we are going to read verse 14. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But <clears throat> before we jump in, if you did not get communion elements as you came into the room today, uh, it is now a good time to go and get those. Hopefully you got those when you came in the room. But at the end of our sermon, we are going to take communion together. And so if you don't have those elements, now's a good time to go and get those. We're beginning a new series that I'm going to talk about in just a few moments, but I want us to begin, uh, as is right, by reading from the story of God and God's people. And so if you've got your Bibles, great. If not, no worries. You can simply follow along on the screen as I read to us from Galatians, a letter that a guy named Paul wrote to the early church, but also to us. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Here's what Paul has to say. As for me, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul focuses his heart and his life on the cross of Christ. I don't know about you guys, but in my house, we have a routine. We have a routine. My children are uh, conditioned by routine, and when things go off of script, things do not go well in the Dyer house. And so we all run on routine. And here's how the routine works at the Dyer house. At 5 o'clock or between 5 and 5.15, we sit down for dinner. And at dinner, we go around the room and we talk about what was your favorite part of the day, what was the thing that brought you joy. And it's awesome to get to hear these kids talk about what brings them joy in their day. Now, after dinner is done, they now get to clean the table and put the dishes in the dishwasher, and they immediately go upstairs to get in the bathtub. When bath time is over, then it is now about 6.30. They get about 15 minutes of playtime because we are ritual routine animals. And then at 7 o'clock on the number, my children are in the bed. They are in the bed where they get to read for a few minutes and calm their minds. And at 7.15, dad or mom gets to come into the room for what I now affectionately refer to as the question hour. The question hour where, uh, no kidding, last night, Evie, as we are sitting in the bed, laying in the bed together, she said, dad, can I ask you a question, which is how this whole thing begins. And she says to me, dad, where does money come from? Where does money come from? And I said, babe, as much as I would love to talk to you about fiscal policy and the origins of money, I think we should just go to bed. Sometimes questions are like that, really, just kind of off-the-wall questions about life. But my favorite moments for Evie, especially Evie, my eight-year-old, is she asks me these incredibly deep questions about faith. On a routine basis, questions like this, God, Dad, if God created the world, well, then who created God? And I always say, just talk to the children's minister and she'll tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> if God created the world, then who created God? Dad, you tell me that God is Jesus. Is Jesus God? And how does that whole thing work? Deep questions. And here's the thing. As opposed to, to just kind of sidestepping those questions or brushing them off, I actually love to engage with her. Because here is the thing that I believe. Questions lead us to a deeper faith. Questions have the potential to lead us into a deeper faith. And so I am raising my children in an environment where they are free to ask the sorts of questions that I imagine all of us ask at some level. 
Now, I wasn't raised in the church. I was not raised in the church at all. But the little bit that I did go to the church, one of the things that I encountered is that it was a place where questions weren't allowed. Questions weren't allowed to be asked. And so uh, oftentimes, if you brought up a difficult issue, the response would be, well, we just believe that. Well, we just believe that. And I imagine that some of us growing up in the church, especially in the Bible Belt, that's the sort of thing that you would have encountered as well, that, that questions are just not to be asked. But, but I actually think if questions lead us into a deeper faith, then questions we should encourage, questions we should allow to be asked. And I will tell you guys, part of the reason why I am embarking on this series is an email that I got about a month ago. I got an email a month ago from a gentleman who watches us online or on television. I can't remember which one it was. And he said, Will, I watch every Sunday. And he said, uh, one of the things that I've been wrestling with for my whole life is this question uh, about Jesus. And you talk about how he died for us. And I've wondered uh, why, how is that the case? And so, Will, I'm not trying to box you in. I'm not trying to box you in, but I would love it if you could preach a sermon on that. And my mind started kind of exploring the possibility of that because it was a genuine question. And what I did is I came back to you and I talked about this question that I was asking. And then I said, friends, I wonder, I wonder what questions do you have? What questions do you have about life, about faith, things that you've never really been able to explore in the way that you would like to? And I want you to email me those questions. And for the next month, I'm going to preach a series, I'm Glad You Asked. And guys, what was absolutely phenomenal is that over the course of the past few weeks, I have received over a hundred questions. I received over a hundred questions, which shows me religious environments are far too often stifling not allowing us to ask the things that are pressing on our hearts and on our minds. And so what I want to do over the course of the next month is to address your questions. I want to ask, I'm going to answer the ones that were asked most often, the things that are maybe most pressing on our hearts. And that's what I want to do over the course of the next month. But, but today I want us to start with the OG. Today I want us to start with the original question that got this whole thing kicked off in my brain. So for the next few minutes, here's the thing that I want us to talk about. The question that the gentleman asked was this, why did Jesus die for us? Why did Jesus die for us and what difference does it make? Why did Jesus die for us? Ultimately, friends, this question is a question about the cross. And so what I want to do this morning is just real quickly, we're going to have to fly at about 30,000 feet. I want us to explore the cross. Why did Jesus die for us? Because friends, we all know that at the center of the Christian faith is this idea that through Christ, through his cross, and let's be, let, me, let me pause real quick. Because this morning when I talk about this question, why did Christ die for us? I am at one level talking about the cross. And in the exact same moment, I'm talking about the resurrection. Because these two things go together. If Christ died, but Easter Sunday didn't happen, then nothing else matters. So cross and resurrection go hand in hand. And at the center of the Christian faith is this idea that when Christ dies on the cross, it not only reveals something for us, it actually does something to us. 
That when Christ dies and he is resurrected, it changes the fundamental state of humanity's relationship to God and humanity's relationship to each other. The cross is at the center of everything that we do. And so, guys, every once in a while, we really do. If we want to understand where we are headed, we need to talk about the cross because it's at the center. This guy, Tony Jones, who wrote a book called Did God Kill Jesus? It was a fascinating book. I recommend it to you if you want to explore this topic in more depth. He goes as far as to say that if we understand the cross, then it helps us to better understand about God, about Jesus, and most importantly, maybe, about how we follow Jesus in the world. The cross is at the center of everything we do. It's at the top of all of our steeples, isn't it? Take a look, right? In every church that you would go to, what do you see? You see a steeple at the top. The steeple on top of our church, you know how big it is? Anybody? You know how tall it is? It's eight and a half feet tall. It is enormous. It looks very small up in the sky, but it is enormous because we want it to be big so everyone can see it. And as you drive across the CSRA, church after church after church, you will find crosses. Now, what is fascinating to me in a recent development is that there are a number of really modern contemporary churches that have removed crosses because they think it's offensive. Now, here's the thing I want you to know. The cross is offensive, but it is at the center of who we are and what we do. So we find crosses on churches. The other place that we find crosses are on our bodies, right? Well, everybody knows these. Everybody has crosses. Y'all, I tried to find uh, famous people wearing crosses. I looked up Tupac. But everyone that Tupac had with his cross, he was looking kind of rough. And then I tried to find one with Kim Kardashian wearing her cross. But let me tell you, it is hard to find an appropriate picture of Kim Kardashian to put on a screen at television, uh, at church, okay? We put crosses on our churches. We wear crosses as fashion symbols, The dominant piece of art, the dominant art form in the history of Western thought, it comes to us like this in the cross. The majority of the great Renaissance painters. This is actually a painting that I have in my office. It's a guy named Matthias Grunewald who was writing a painting in the 1500s. And this beautiful painting right there beside Jesus on the cross is John the Baptist, who finger extended, points to Jesus, and he says, He must increase and I must decrease. If we want to know who we are, and if we want to know who we are called to be, then we need to be able to ask this question. Why did Jesus die for us? Friends, listen, the cross is the thing that unites us as a church. And yet what is absolutely fascinating is that over the last few decades, the cross has increasingly become a thing that divides churches. I will never forget, I've been at this church for six years. I've been at this church for six years, and when I first became the pastor of the church, before I ever preached a sermon, there was a group of people that asked to sit down with me. They had never heard a sermon that I preached, and they asked to sit down with me because they had heard from someone else that I had the wrong views about the cross. The cross is something that unites us, and yet, increasingly, it is a thing that divides us. And so what I got to do is I got to sit down with those wonderful people, and I got to parse Greek verbs with them. Y'all, they had so much fun. It was incredible. And when it was done, we all emerged with a better understanding of the cross. But here's the thing I want us to understand. The cross is not to divide us. 
But the cross is the thing that brings us together because of the cross, because of Jesus, there's no Greek or Jew nor male nor female, but all are one in him. The cross is the thing that unites us. And what is absolutely fascinating to me is that when you go throughout church history, when you go throughout the history of the church, which is one of those things that I love to do, for the first thousand years after the resurrection of Jesus, there isn't a single major theological debate about the meaning of the cross. There are major worldwide church councils that talk about who is Jesus, what is the church. There are major doctrinal councils where we bring people together. But don't let this be lost on you. For the first 1,000 years of the church's existence, we did not debate the nature of the cross. Because here's the thing. As we embark on this discussion, we need to remember what the early church understood, okay? And here's what they knew. That the cross at its core is a deep and profound mystery. At the center of the cross, the reason we exist, there is a mystery that is almost impossible to put into words. And so as we begin our discussion this morning, one of the things that we really have to understand is this key point. That when we talk about God, our words need to be measured. When we talk about God, we approach with a fearfulness and a trepidation because there are no words that can encapsulate the greatness of God, the wonder and the mystery of the cross. And so, friends, listen to me. Here's what I want you to know. That as we talk about these deep and profound subjects, that the mark, and this is really important, the mark of mature Christian thought is humility. The mark of mature Christian thought is humility. And I grew up not going to church at all, like you all know at this point, but the few times I did, there was one presentation of the cross that was presented to us as the only way to think about the cross. And they were right and everyone else was wrong. And what I want to tell you this morning is that if anyone, absolutely anyone, tells you they have the answer when they say anything about God, you need to be very skeptical of that sort of thing. Because the key hallmark of Christian thought is humility. And so as we embark on this journey, not only today, but over the course of the next month, know that we do so with humble hearts. Because when we ask those deep questions, it actually brings us to a deeper faith. And what we're going to do over the course of the next few minutes is I want to explore, there are three, three primary ways for us to think about the cross. And it can, in fact, get pretty academic, and I am a bit of a nerd if you push me on it. So I'm going to do my best to not get in the weeds. Because in these three primary ways of thinking about the cross, I want you to understand that these are not just academic discussions, but in fact, they are profound ways to have your life shaped by the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. So we do this with humility and we do it with love for the Father who loved us enough to send his only son into the world. So why did Jesus die for us? 
The first uh, idea, the first kind of atonement theology that I want to talk about this morning is this one, substitutionary atonement. If you grew up in the church, if you grew up around Christianity in, uh, in Georgia or in the South at all, absolutely at all, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is the version of Christianity that you have been exposed to. The basic idea in penal and substitutionary atonement is this idea that God is holy, God is just, God is good, and God being holy and just and righteous, he looks at us and we are, now are you ready for this, we are sinful. And what I mean by that is you and I do things every single day that God knows are not good for us. You and I do things every single day that misses the mark of who God intends for us to be. And because of that sinfulness, we have become separated from God. And the relationship that was intended to be in the beginning is now broken. And so substitutionary atonement goes all the way back into the beginning of the Bible where Cain and Abel offer sacrifice to God. And the ancient Israelites, through the temple sacrificial system, they offered sacrifices to God, sometimes sacrifice of thanksgiving, but oftentimes sacrifices of atonement. Recognition that we have fallen short of who you have made us to be. And so, God, we apologize, we repent, we turn and want to go a better direction. And substitutionary atonement says that no matter how hard we try, no matter how many sacrifices we bring, we can never enter into the sight and in the presence of a holy God. And so if that is the case, then what are we to do? And substitutionary atonement says that God in his infinite goodness, God in his infinite wisdom, he sends his son into the world. God takes on flesh and he comes among us. He lives this perfect, sinless life. And then he dies on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And he dies the death that we deserve. And through Jesus Christ, we are once and for all, finally and forever, reconciled to God. We are made right and we are made whole. If you grew up in the church at all, this is what you heard, correct? Largely, that's the case. And if you need scripture reference for this, here's a perfect one, right? In the book of Romans, Paul's greatest letter, here's what he has to say in Romans chapter 3. That all have sinned and fell short of God's glory. All have sinned and fell short of God's glory, but by God's grace, they are freely declared to be in the right, to be members of the covenant, the promise between God and God's people through the redemption, which is found in Christ Jesus. You are broken, but Jesus makes you whole. You are sinful. Now look, y'all, I know this rings kind of difficult on modern ears. I'm sinful. Yes. In fact, you are. Look at the content of your life. And if you are willing to be honest with yourself, you will recognize the brokenness in your own life. You will recognize the brokenness in your own heart. And substitutionary atonement says it is not up to you to be made right with God. But thanks be to him, he sent his son so that we might be restored and put in right relationship. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
but Jesus is the one who restores us. Y'all, this is the center of the gospel. Is it true? Yes. Is it profound and beautiful? Absolutely. But is it the only way to think about the cross? No. So substitutionary atonement, the way that most of us were probably raised to think about Jesus, to think about why did he die for us? But there's actually another way to think about the cross. And I I actually love this one as much as I love the first substitutionary atonement. The second way that historically Christians have thought about the cross is through a theory known as Christus Victor. That's Latin. And so if you want to sound smart, go out and have lunch and use big Latin words like Christus Victor. But if you want to translate it into English, it is Christ the Victor. Now, most of us maybe have not heard this, although you sing songs about it on Easter. And the basic idea behind this thought in church history, why did Christ die for us? Here's how it goes. That sin enters into the world through Adam and Eve. And this sin distorts God's vision. It it distorts God's dream for what creation is supposed to be. And in order for God's fulfillment to come forth on the earth, then sin has to be dealt with. Death has to be dealt with. And beyond our own ability to do that, what God does is he sends Jesus into the world. And y'all, this is where it gets really, really good. Because Jesus goes to the cross. And when he is on the cross, which by the way is a Roman instrument of death. When you are crucified, you have lost. Your life is over. But Christus Victor, Christ the Victor theory and idea says that when Jesus goes to the cross, he takes on the powers of the world. He takes on evil in its fullest sense as he is crucified and humiliated. He takes on death as he is buried in the tomb. And he defeats Satan once and for all when the stone is rolled away and he emerges on the third day. The Christus Victor, Christ the Victor model says that through Jesus Christ, death has been defeated. Through Jesus Christ, new creation has been launched in the midst of this world. Through Jesus Christ, the world is a fundamentally different place. And because of what he did and because he defeated sin and death, we are free to live Without fear, we are free to live with boldness in this world. And God knows the church needs that now more than ever. In one of Paul's letters to a different church in Colossae, here's what he has to say that I think encapsulates Christus Victor so well. That on the cross, Jesus stripped the rulers and authorities of their armor. They thought they were humiliating him, but he displayed them contemptuously in public view. And it is through the cross of Christ where we celebrate his triumph over death. And if Jesus Christ is alive, then friends, anything is possible. Christus Victor is why we are able to stand at funerals and proclaim that not even death can separate us from the love of God that we found in Jesus Christ. This idea that Christ defeats the powers on the cross and in his resurrection, it enables us to live with strength and with audacity and with hope. And I love this idea. Is it true? Yes. But is it the only way to think about the cross? 
There's actually a third way. There's actually a third way as well. And while there is substitutionary atonement, which was developed in about 1000 AD, Christus Victor, which goes back a little bit earlier than that. The final way that I want to talk to you about the three primary major ways to think about the cross is moral influence. The moral influence idea is developed by a man named Peter Abelard. He's writing in about 1100 AD. And Abelard says that contrary to medieval Christianity that painted God as wrathful and angry, a God who was willing and waiting to strike you down at any moment, what Abelard says is that when we look at the cross of Christ, what we find is the ultimate manifestation of God's love. It's John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And what happens when we view, when we properly view Jesus on that cross, it generates a response inside of our hearts. It changes the way we think. Because if God is willing to do that for me, then how much more should I be willing to do for my brothers and my sisters? If you want to know a passage that I think sums this idea up so beautifully... It actually comes from one of the earliest followers of Jesus as well, a guy named John. And here's what he says in 1 John chapter 4, that this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the sacrifice that would atone for our sins. And this beautiful last sentence, beloved, if this is how God loved us, then we ought to love each other in the same way. And in a world where Christians are increasingly known by the things they are against and by the things that they hate, when you properly understand this idea, if that's how God loved us and we gaze upon the cross and it changes our heart, so we ought to love each other in that same way. Is the moral influence idea of the cross true? Yes. Yes, it is absolutely true. And just like the other two, it is life transforming because it generates a response of our heart. And so I know some of you are sitting out here right now and I've gone through these three ideas. Hopefully it was not too academic. I'm flying at 30,000 feet. Don't be too critical of me, okay? And some of you are sitting there and you're thinking like, Will, which one is right? Which one is right? Because we live in a black and white world and one has to be right and the others have to be wrong. And instead of thinking in that dualistic Western thought process, instead I want you to imagine a test at school. I want you to imagine the Scantron is in front of you. And you got A, substitutionary atonement. And you got B, Christ the victor. And you got C, moral influence. And I'm sweating, right? Which one is it? Which one is it? But we all know the Scantron. And thank God there's D. And the answer is, as we survey the cross, why did Christ die for us? Friends, it is all of the above. It is all of the above. And what I want you to know this morning, my friends, is that this isn't just an academic discussion. But if we understand, because if we understand the nature of what truly happened on the cross, then it changes our lives. While you were yet a sinner, and in a culture that wants to point out the flaws of every other person, 
The cross says, look at your own heart first. Because while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And if he was willing to die for you, he's willing to die for the person that you hate. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we understand that his love extends to everyone. And as his people, that means our love extends in the same place. Friends, this is not an academic discussion. Because what I said at the beginning is absolutely true. That the cross of Christ not only reveals something about us, but it in fact does something to us. It changes our hearts when you grasp it. It changes your lives when you comprehend the depth and the magnitude of God's love. Friends, we are talking about the cross, and I'm so glad, friend, you asked that question. Because here's what we understand Why did Jesus die for us? Why did he go for the cross? Why is he resurrected on the third day? Here's why. Because something has happened in Christ. Something has happened in him that makes possible and available a new way of life. You can live in a way that is good because you are reconciled to God. You can live in a way that is whole because you are connected to the one who made heaven and earth. A new way is possible because he has defeated death. A new way is possible because he has worked in your own heart. And so what I want to do this morning is just make it radically clear. Why did Christ die? Well, friends, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. And we celebrate that this morning. We celebrate that his death makes the world a fundamentally different place. And so what I want to do this morning is to end our discussion and to end our time together by taking that meal, by taking his body broken and his blood poured out, by celebrating the cross of Christ, because we boast in nothing but him. And so if you're here in the room this morning, if you're watching online, I hope you got your communion elements. If you're here and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to be at this table. You are welcome to take this bread, his body. You are welcome to take this cup, his blood. And what I want to do now is uh, pass on the tradition as it's come to me and all those who've come before us. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples in an upper room. And he knew where the story was headed, and they shared this incredible meal together. And then there was this moment at the meal where Jesus looked to his disciples, and he picked up some bread. And he said to them, this bread, it takes on new significance, because now it is my body, which is broken for you and for many. And so Jesus broke the loaf in front of his disciples, and he took some bread, and he said to them, this is my body, broken for you. Take it and eat it. And after he had done so with the bread, then Jesus took the cup. It was wine for them, juice for us. And he held it up before his disciples. And knowing what they knew about his body, then Jesus said to them that this cup It is something new and profound in the world. This cup is now my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so he looked at his disciples as he looks to us on this day. And he said to them, this is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink.
when the meal was over. The story says that they sung a hymn and they went out from there. And so just a moment, we'll sing to wrap up our time together. But if you're here in this room today and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. I want you to know that he's defeated death so that we can live. I want you to know that Christ died for you. And maybe today is the day where you take that reality into your own heart. So before we sing, I want to invite you to join me as we pray together. Let's pray. God, we're grateful. We're grateful for another morning where we can be here, where we can celebrate you and your goodness. And so God, today as we consider this profound question, why did Christ die for us? Help us to explore these meanings in our hearts, but ultimately God, to know that it is about your love. It is about your goodness. It is about your grace. So may each one of my brothers and sisters, may each one of my friends here in this room and online, may they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the cross shows your love. May we believe that in our souls this morning. May we know that you are alive forevermore. God, we are grateful for all your many gifts. We are grateful for your body and your blood broken for us. Be with us now as we continue to worship. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.